Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Long Story Short. I'm your host, Jeff Serkin. On this show, we talk to marketers and entrepreneurs about actionable strategies to help you connect with your audience and keep your finger on the pulse of your market. My guest this week is MJ Smith. She is the Vice President of Marketing at CoLab Software, a startup focused on helping mechanical engineers collaborate and make decisions faster. Before CoLab, MJ led sales and marketing at Refine Labs, where she worked with more than 50 B2B software startups. She also spent six years working at Halma PLC, a group of mid-sized manufacturing businesses focused on medical, environmental, and safety technology. I had a great conversation with MJ. We talked about how product marketing needs to be priority number one for an organization's first VP of marketing and how she takes action with insights from customer research. We also discussed how MJ interfacing with finances made her into a better executive. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with MJ Smith. Hi, MJ. Thanks for coming on Long Story Short. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with where you are today. Uh, can you give us a sense for what your world looks like at Colab? Yeah, so uh, Colab raised a Series A a little bit over a year ago, and I joined as the first executive level marketing leader um, since the company was founded in 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're, we're basically kind of um, navigating that transition point between startup and scale up. So, yep. um, you know, going into the Series A, um, part of the reason that they were able to raise that funding round is because they had started to uh, get some traction that uh, would indicate, you know, clear product market fit. And so um, I am one of the uh, executive leaders that's been brought in to help the company scale up our go to market, um, which has involved a bunch of stuff. But um, I've been really focused on positioning, messaging mm-hmm. and uh, demand gen. I love that. And, th- and that's actually where I want to go next is that something you touched on uh, was that as the first you know, marketing executive that you see your role as being essentially a product marketer first with the primary objective to get the message right, get the positioning right. And so, you know, I, I think the, the big question I want to ask is like, why do you see that as being the first goal? And, and then, you know, and then more importantly, how do you go about accomplishing it? Sure. Um, yeah, I think uh, demand gen is completely inseparable from product marketing, especially mm-hmm. if you're talking about um, creating a new category, which is what yep. we're trying to do. Um, you have to understand your customers, how your product fundamentally changes like the outcomes of business processes that they do every day. And then you can create, you know, content about that or ads about that or website pages about that, that basically get that message using all the distribution channels available to us as marketers in front of customers at scale. And obviously you hope that that whole process brings customers inbound to you so that you can, Mm -hmm. you know, for lack of a better term, put some points on the board as the marketing leader. Um, But I always start with product marketing because starting to pull all those channel levers, it's not going to get you very far and it's not going to get you efficient results, which is especially important in today's climate, unless you uh, really do the work to deeply understand like what is the value proposition that, that you're proposing to these people when your content gets in front of them. Yes. And and just to echo a lot of that, you know, the common theme that I hear in sort of our own research that we do for marketers is that our content's great, but somehow it doesn't perform well, right? And that the message we leave in the market, we know it resonates, but the issue is that we need budget to get in front of more people. And to me, the issue really as a broader marketing community is that we don't look critically to see the content and messaging and recognize that it's probably just not relevant to our ICP. And, you know, frankly, I'd argue that as an analytics person, you don't want to scale something that's not working. And so I couldn't agree more that you need to start by getting it right. Then you go to scale. 
And I think it kind of goes in line with something I've, I've seen you say uh, on LinkedIn, which is basically like, you don't just have a demand gen problem, right? And I, and I think it's the blaming of the tactics and channels without actually looking at sort of the core of what we're doing. Yeah, totally. And, and I think another thing that plays into that is like every single year, content marketing, demand mm -hmm. gen, all of that becomes so much more competitive. So like yep. in 2016, I was, you know, running demand gen for a, yeah. uh, for a small manufacturing company and we made water quality sensors and um, I had never done SEO before, but like, mm -hmm. I, you know, sitting in a building full of people who are experts on water quality sensors and turns out nobody was doing SEO on water quality sensors. <laughs> right. So it didn't really matter that I wasn't like the best SEO marketer in the world. I just sat mm -hmm. there, like would sit with the technical support manager, sit with the sales manager, have them explain stuff to me. We had an electrochemist on staff. I would have him explain stuff to me. I would like write articles about it, kind of SEO mm -hmm. optimize them. Grew traffic 700% in, in 12 right. months. Uh, increased like inbound sales ops, like 70% in nine months and like built an e-commerce business from zero to a million in like three years. And that was a lot easier back then than it would be yep. now. Now, a lot of it still applies. If you do that research and you publish genuinely useful stuff, uh, you can still get through and break through to customers. But like, I think people are still kind of stuck in that 2015, 2016 mindset where like, if you just did the stuff, if you just did the tactics, because nobody else was doing the tactics yet, you would win, right? We're not, we're not there. Yep. I, I love that. Even just as you were saying in 2016, I was leading marketing for a healthcare startup. And we were in the same place. Like we did some very basic keyword research. We found out that essentially the market was calling our product something different than we were calling it. All we literally did was change the name of our product on the website. And same thing, we had organic traffic go up 500%. It ended up doubling our revenue. And it was one of these things where it felt like, wow, that was almost too easy, right? <laughs> it's like, and the truth is it was, I mean, you know, it's just that, but that those kinds of, you know, those kinds of results just don't exist anymore. Totally. But like people still want you to believe that those kinds of results. Exist. Yes. I mean, yes. I think a lot of like business owners get the wool pulled over their eyes a little bit with, with like, there's a million SEO agencies now and mm -hmm. marketing agencies. And it's like, how many of them just know how to like pull some levers and do some tactics versus how many truly know how to understand your product, explain it to your customers yes. and put that into the channels where it makes sense. Yeah, so I, I want to go into understanding your customers, and, and you have a, a very impressive re research background across a number of different companies. And one of the common reasons I hear for not doing, you know, customer or buyer research is that they don't really know what to do with the results. And so I, I'm curious if you could just kind of share your background with research, but more, most importantly, like how do you then use those insights to, to take action? Yeah, so um, I would consider myself a classically trained product marketer. Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is like a dying breed. Um, like <laughs> taught me how to do marketing, like worked at primarily two places, Procter and Gamble mm -hmm. and um, Hilti. And to me, like just given all the people I've met at Hilti, it's a fantastic company, probably not a company mm -hmm. a lot of people are familiar with, but B2B like construction and tools, right? For right, right. Um, and they like have a product marketing machine over there and Procter and Gamble, obviously everybody knows them, but they're like, oh, of course people consider them widely the best marketing company in the world. Right. right? So, um, you know, I, I learned the tools of the trade from, from people who believe that like understanding your customer is the most important thing that marketing does. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, uh, have spent most of my career marketing to industrial personas, mm -hmm. either on the operations side of things like, uh, machining companies, uh, production managers, facilities managers, or now, um, engineers in industrial mm -hmm. companies. And so, 
I have like very little in common with these people. I can't just sit here and assume like what they do. <laughs> right. right. Like it's not like I'm marketing to other marketers and I can just guess yep. based on my own mm-hmm. personal experience. So mm-hmm. I have to be good at research. Um, and so uh, it's the first thing I, I do because I feel like I'm flying blind without mm-hmm. uh, the, the things I tend to look for in research. So coming back to your question of like, how do you use it? Um, I really look for like three specific things when I'm conducting interviews and um, I will prep for every in- interview individually, but then I'll kind of go back and listen to recorded interviews and pull out three specific types of insights. The first mm-hmm. one is jobs. What does the customer yep. consider to be their number one job? Um, a big trap a lot of marketers fall into is that um, they assume that the customer's job is to do whatever their product helps with, but right. customer right. Customer doesn't think that's their like it's part of their job, but like when you ask exactly. them your job, they're gonna say like one or two or three things, and then you gotta position yourself in that context, not just mm-hmm. care about what your product does. Number two, pains, and number three, pain relievers. So yep. pains, just like anything that's frustrating in the course of getting those jobs done. Pain relievers, anything that you know uh, addresses that frustration, whether it's your product or not. So I pull out mm-hmm. those three things: jobs, pains, pains relievers. And then I look for trends, right? And they come out yep. very quickly. Like you talk to like 10 people, four or five of them will say the same thing. And that's how you kind of narrow in on building a value proposition that's contextualized inside of a customer's business process. Yeah, I, I love it. And the way I say it is in very similar. It's like, you know, for me, when you understand the biggest pain points and priorities of your ideal customers, and, and kind of as you were saying, the biggest strategic output is really to align your core positioning, prioritize your messaging, really to speak to those challenges they face show how your product solves those problems. But I really love what you said that ultimately, and, and I think this is something that we all take for granted, that our potential customers, their world is a lot bigger than the, what our product does, right? The, and, and maybe what our product does is it solves something that's 10, 15, 20% of their job, but to assume that that's the entirety of their world, to your point, I, I think that really misses the misses the mark, right? And so to understand the fact that, oh no, they have 20 other things going on and this might help them with one, but if we kind of play it up as if this is going to be the thing that helps you get promoted, that doubles your revenue, all those kinds of things, it, again, you're, you're probably overselling. Yeah. And, and um, digging in more on that, on that topic of like, what do you use this for? Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, you might be, you, you can easily be marketing to the wrong person entirely. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> we had a product uh, at one company I was working at that was um, sold to, people who run ground support equipment. So that's like all the vehicles that like service airplanes when they're on the ground. And we yep. were like, how, um, how do we sell more of this? Like we probably need to sell it to the VP of operations at the airport, right? And mm-hmm. and so we, we went out and did some customer research and we found that actually, no, the VP of operations at the airport cares about like the shops and stuff that are in there. Right. Um, there's actually a specific uh, person who's actually employed by the airline for the most part, mm-hmm. third party. Um, and, and we had to be selling to them. So we could, we could have just been completely marketing to the wrong person. Right. Also end up saying like completely the wrong thing. Right. So like mm-hmm. we thought in this case that what they cared about most was like making sure their vehicles didn't catch on fire so that they didn't end up in a maintenance shop all day. Makes yep. sense. Right. Mm-hmm. But actually they, even though that happened more often, the only thing they ever cared about is if the vehicle caught on fire when it was immediately under a plane and caught the plane on fire. Right. 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 So like right, there's only right. one specific case they care about, you have to talk about that. That's what the sales process is about. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of times they're reactive to this thing having already happened. So like we just didn't know anything about this market going in and, and research showed us like, who do we need to be talking to? What does the message need to be? And then uh, going back to the beginning of the conversation, 
then you are able to like execute a content marketing plan or execute a field marketing plan or whatever you do next. Yeah. And, and one of the other things you mentioned is really the idea that even in that case, you might be talking to the, the right person, but there might be multiple different roles that you need to be able to speak to throughout the course of the buying process. And so there may be the end user, there may be the buyer, there, there may be any other influencer. And so for me, the way we approach it is what are all the roles? Who are all the people that need to get involved within the purchase decision? And how do you better understand what each of them need to hear and at different stages? And again, and that's how ideally you begin to align this along the, the buyer's journey. Um, the, the other thing from, from my perspective as a quantitative researcher is really the lowest hanging fruit, frankly, especially from a demand perspective is content. You know, so all the data-driven insights can easily be turned into that demand content. And one of the little tricks we employ is that the, the people who took part in the research, which ideally is your ideal customers, um, your prospects, not your customers, to be clear, it, it's exactly the audience who want then to consume the content because it's about them fundamentally. It's, it's here's big picture what we know about, you know, it might be a, a CMO or it might be engine, you know, might, might be a, a software engineer. But they want to now know where they sit and what the other big struggles are that that people that are in their role are facing. Um, yeah, and, and that's where quantitative um, can be really cool, right? Like, uh, yep. like yep. I mean, quali you can use qualitative that way too. But people love like content with data yep. <laughs> um, and trends. Um, and equally, uh, like a trend I've been fascinated by is like software products that generate a lot of data through usage and, and yep. pulling out that data and doing analysis on it and, and packaging that as content as well. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because to me, that's still a very big kind of missing piece within marketing in general is just having real product analytics um, and something I've thought a lot about and, and something I've been a part of on all sides of, but worked at companies where, and this was feedback we used to get, was the fact that we would sign a new customer and then they wouldn't hear from us until a year or three years later when their renewal was due. And like, you didn't even know that we didn't even log in, right? And, and, and again, there's just so many of those things that you're doing nothing to improve the customer experience. And then, you know, but, but so much of this stuff is really, I don't want to call it low hanging fruit because it, it involves some, you know, some upgrades to your product itself, but the ability to, to have that. And I think to your point, uh, I, I'm an analytics guy. So to be able to see more broadly what people are doing and frankly, finding use cases that maybe you as the, as the owner of the product didn't even know existed. And now, well, how do we build this in there? Right? It, like there's, there's so many different use cases, but I, to your point, I think it makes for great content as well. Totally. Um, yeah, and, and, and I do think that in a perfect world that the right answer is, is yes and, right, between qualitative and quantitative. I, you know, so something we like to do is we focus on quantitative, but we like to do some qualitative interviews to round it out. And part of that, again, is to be able to get the quotes, uh, to be able to give context to it. And that's where I think, you know, in a perfect world, if, if I had unlimited time and budget, you'd kind of be going back and forth. You would have the qualitative conversations that would help you say, oh, okay, I now have all of these things I want to test quantitatively. Then you'd run the survey and then you'd find a couple other things. You're like, oh, I wonder why that is. Let me have some conversations to find out and dig into it. And like, it's that process um, that, that to me, I think is really what should be the, the driving engine behind a lot of this. Yeah. And I would approach it exactly the same way, right? You start with the qualitative because that points you in the right direction and yep. then you kind of know what you want to go out and validate with quantitative. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, so I want to I want to switch gears a, a little bit, and I, I I've seen you, know, you post on LinkedIn really about how demystifying the black box of finance has helped you make you specifically more strategic and into a better executive. So can you talk a little bit about that, and especially like what steps you've taken uh, to be able to get there? Yeah. So uh, in my first executive role, I was in a pretty like finance driven company, mm -hmm. finance driven manufacturing company. 
And um, the reason that I realized I needed to uh, demystify finance for myself is because uh, at the end of each month, my boss, the managing director, would submit a report to his boss, who was like a, an executive inside of the main holding company at mm-hmm. HP. And uh, it was called the president's report, and it would be five pages long. I had to submit a marketing report, finance submits the finance report, ops submits the ops report. And he would often pull like huge sections out of our reports and put them in the president's report. Yes. And I was always like, oh, that like my marketing thing made it in the president's report, right? Like, oh, he must have thought that was interesting, right? I would always read his president's report and like 40% of it came straight out of the finance report. Right. <laughs> it didn't make sense to me. Like it was, it was a black box. It was like, at first it was literally like reading a textbook, reading mm-hmm. a report. But I knew like if 40% of this report is going to be finance, like there are six execs that are also making mm-hmm. reports, 40% of it ends up being finance. Like this is important. I need to understand it. So every time the president's report came out, I would study the, the financial mm-hmm. section and, um, you know, sometimes I'd probably have to look stuff up on Google, but like, this is how I learned the difference between profit and cash. This is why right. this is how I learned like, oh, so that's why uh, accounts receivable is such a big deal. Right. Um, you know, this and, and then and then you start to get into the actual strategy insights that impact marketing. So as an example, in that business, we had different segments, different customer segments mm-hmm. um, that that made up the core of our business. And you could actually like pull out a separate PL for each customer segment, which is something that we did. And so I worked closely with the finance leader to create customer segment PLs. And mm-hmm. you can see like, wow, like these customers are so much more profitable than these ones over here. So if we applied like the same amount of overhead, sales resources, marketing resources yep. in this segment and grew by, you know, the same percentage basis, we would drop so many more dollars to the bottom mm-hmm. line. And mm-hmm. so like marketing and finance can really play off each other. Like the finance leader wouldn't have been able to build those reports without me telling them about the different customer segments and like what they bought. And equally, I wouldn't have been able to have as deep of insights about which customer segments to deliberately target with marketing had I not had the support from finance to build out those models and see how the gross margin dropped to the bottom line in such a dramatic way, uh, depending on which customer segment you were looking at. Yeah. And, and I think the way you say that, it kind of reminds me of the way we were discussing kind of the qualitative and quantitative where the right answer is yes. And, and frankly, in this case, the way you're saying it is really, you wouldn't be as effective as a marketer without finance. Finance wouldn't be as effective without you. But I think so much of that is really the part of trying to understand really where they're coming from. And, and I think that's something that really gets lost, which is why I, I really wanted to, to talk to you about this specifically. Uh, another thing in general, because I think the first thing that marketers think about when it comes to finance is budget. Where's my budget going to come from? But better having a better understanding of where the money is going, what's making them money today, what's not. It, again, you know, frankly, I've had other conversations on the podcast where the idea about so many marketers come in and say, "Well, I need the first bridge I need to build is with sales, right?" Almost seeing sales as as sort of the their leader almost, but then recognizing that no, actually, finance is the one that kind of controls all the purse strings, and there should be consensus between across marketing, finance, and sales of how are we going to measure the value of this. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, how can we better justify the, the value of the marketing we're driving? Yeah. And I mean, like, look, the sales leader uh, definitely is going to go in and build a strong relationship with finance, right? Absolutely. That's right. the reason that sales tends to always get the resources they need. Mm-hmm. It's so straightforward, the conversation of like, we put X resources in, we get X dollars out. Yep. It's a li- like, I can understand why marketers don't do this as much because I do think it's like, 
a little bit trickier to model mm -hmm. that out from marketing. And it's hard to do without at least doing a little bit of experimentation to understand like, you know, my cost per opportunity from this channel is X and this one's X. Like you need to, you need to do some small scale experiments to even get like order of magnitude data that you can later plug into a model. But like yeah. the, the marketers that own a number and the marketers that understand what, you know, financial levers that they are pulling and how that impacts the business are the ones that get a seat at the table. So if yes. what the table is what you want, then, then these are things you should really be thinking about. Yeah. And, and I you know, think we're, we're all familiar with the struggle that marketers don't have that full seat totally at the table strategically within the organizations. And I think a big part of it is what we're talking about here is really thinking like a business owner and some of the business acumen. But I think also part of it comes down to, frankly, just being able to effectively set expectations to your to your point around. I know it's hard for marketers and we don't need to go into this, but how you quantify the value of what you do, but being able to effectively set expectations of we have some confidence around XYZ and here's the leading indicators we're going to be looking at. But when we have this budget, we need nine months to run these kinds of programs and, and here's what we're going to be looking at. But to be able to do that and in a really holistic and comprehensive way gives a, a little more. Uh, otherwise, you get caught in this trap of the quarterly trap of, OK, you had this budget. Now you show up to the next board meeting next quarter. And, oh, well, what do we have to show for it? Oh, nothing yet. OK, cut it. Right. And, and I think it, until you can really be able to effectively set those expectations and have the conversation to your point, I don't I don't think you've earned the full seat at the table. 100%. And um, it's interesting. It's really easy to have this conversation in the context of demand gen, right? Like channels yeah. and the channels in and then mm -hmm. opportunities out. Um, but but you can totally impact a PNL as a product marketer too. And I have. Oh, yeah. um, we did like a product rationalization project in a manufacturing company I was working in. I was the product marketing lead on that project. And um, as a result of that, we sold exclusively higher margin products and we mm -hmm. made obsolete some lower margin products. And over the course of a year after that, it was the number one marketing lever we pulled. We, we dropped seven figures of gross margin dollars to the bottom line as a result of a product Amazing. driven uh, project. But to your point, that was a, it was a 12 month lagging time period. Yeah. <laughs> However, it was like 100% one of the most impactful things I've done in my career. So product marketing can impact P&L just like Manion. And even one thing I just wanna mention that, that you said earlier is, uh, frankly, even you said that a lot of the, the presence report started by you saying, here's the customer segments we're targeting, but then being able to have visibility into the profitability of those customer segments. and. Again, this is something that marketing typically doesn't have visibility into it. Marketing is typically so focused on net new. But what if you knew that there's a certain set of customers that are going to stay longer, that are going to be higher profit customers in the long run, that are going to renew more often? Frankly, that's again, that's better for the business. So it might not be the the sexy one that you want to go after because they're you know more all over social media or something like that. But again, when you can show that now, oh, now that I know this, this is how we're going to align. This is how we're going to change our targeting as a result of what we now know. Yeah. And I mean, my experience has been that finance like loves helping you with mm -hmm, this kind of stuff mm -hmm. um, because the reality of being uh, a finance leader is like, uh, or, or, you know, a senior financial manager, right? Like they have access to all the data. They are great at building models with the data, but mm -hmm. they are not, they don't have the marketing expertise or the sales expertise or whatever expertise to know like what the input and output variable. Exactly. So like if you do a great job of explaining that and asking what you need from them, they'll build you amazing models. And and usually like people don't, but they aren't proactive about partnering with finance. Yeah. So like it feels like a breath of fresh air. At least that's how it seems like to me for finance when you're actually proactive and 
and try to partner with them and try to leverage their expertise in financial modeling to make better decisions in your department. And, and I think so much of it really comes down to being proactive as opposed to reactive, as opposed to, wait a second, how come you know we're getting cut? And it's like, again, it's if you set the expectations up front, and if you worked with them to build the model in the first place, now everyone's on the same team and we're all you know sort of swimming in the same direction. Well, yeah, and, and if you know your numbers like that, Mm-hmm. Um, the conversation when it comes time to cut budgets, because sometimes, you know, sometimes you got to cut the budget. Yep. Um, the yep. conversation is like, okay, we're, we're cutting this budget and we know that the impact on pipeline or revenue is going to yes. be next, So we adjust the targets accordingly. Yes. Yeah. It, which, which again, I think is something that, that gets missed because there's always a, well, wait a second, we got our budgets cut, but the targets are still the same. And again, there's just so much conversation that's really missed in there. Because yes, at that point, those are unrealistic expectations. But if if you can't get ahead of that and help explain why they're unrealistic based on what you're now losing, then they're they're not going to change. Hundred um, percent. And then you know from there, if you know your numbers and you kind of know the correlation between your budget and mm-hmm. uh, what the outputs are going to be, then you can have an informed discussion about like, okay. Well, if we want to be more efficient, right, if we can't bring the targets all the way down, but but the budget needs to come down a little bit, yep. we focus on the things that are most efficient. What levers do we have to maybe add some lower cost of acquisition channels into the mix and focus more on those? Um, and, and what impact do we realistically think those levers are going to have? Because a CEO yep. understands that, you know, mm-hmm. like they're, they're pulling levers in, in their role all day, right? That's what they do. Um so are you ready for a couple of uh, not so rapid fire questions? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So the first one is what's the most overrated marketing activity? What is something that marketers are maybe doing a little too much of from your perspective? Super ironic, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to go podcast here. Great. No, no. Perfect. <laughs> and I think that, I think that the answer is a little nuanced. It's not because a, a podcast can't like literally transform your business. I've worked for yeah. where the podcast yeah. is 63% of the pipeline, mm-hmm. but I think probably 80 to 90% of podcasts are like not executed in a way that is strategic enough to actually mm-hmm. have that impact. And so for that 80 to 90%, uh, it would be better off just not doing the podcast. So you've right. got to make a choice on podcasts. Is it really going to be something that you pour enough time and effort into that's going to be strategic? Or are you just going through the motions? Because if you're just going through the motions, just reinvest that effort into something else. As as somebody hosting a podcast, I completely agree. <laughs> I mean, honestly, and, and and frankly, the way this podcast actually started was frankly during the pandemic, and and a lot of it, frankly, initially was part of my version of networking, right? And so it, it it's evolved into more than that. But selfishly for me, this became my kind of connection to the outside world in a lot of ways, and you know, being able to connect with somebody like you who you know halfway across the country, right? So, um, so no, but totally agree in general, and I think there's. The whole idea of, you know, maybe maybe people don't want to hear this, but yeah, the next podcast probably doesn't need to be created is, is really what it is. Yeah. And like, why are you doing it? Right. Because yep. if you're just doing it for networking, um, mm-hmm. you don't necessarily need to have an enormous audience. Right. So like maybe exactly a trick that you that you um, that you mm-hmm. measure. Right. Um, if you are doing it as like a demand gen play, like your mm-hmm. audience size does matter. And you absolutely levers you can pull to to ramp up that audience. So I think a lot of people don't actually think about the business purpose of their podcast. And so therefore they just measure all the metrics and yes. do all the episode formats. And, and it's just, it just becomes like kind of a, a jumble. Mm-hmm. 
I, I mean, I, I think we don't need to go there, but I think that you could probably generalize a lot of that to a lot of the things in marketing that are harder to measure, where it's kind of like, well, we're just going to measure all the things and treat everything the same. Whereas to your point, if you're clearer about your goal, ideally, as, as the numbers guy, I would always say what you measure is going to incentivize how you actually create it. And so being clear about what the goals are and to your point, what the things are that you don't care about that, that are just vanity or maybe they're nice to have, but that's not actually what you're trying to drive towards. Totally. Um, so let's spin it positive. So how about the opposite? What, what would you say is the most underrated marketing activity? I think the most underrated marketing activity is obsessing over the messaging on your website. So, so explain that a little more. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more generally, but and I know we talked a little bit about it at the top, but um, would love to hear more specifically why you mean like that specifically on, on your website. So I, I think almost every channel that you go out and execute is ultimately mm -hmm. going to drive people back through like a conversion point, which tends to be your website. Yes. And it's really hard to tell mm -hmm. a super cohesive story on your mm -hmm. website. Um, we have been obsessing over the messaging on our website for a year since I joined a collab over a year. And I still think there is like so much more work to do on it. And fortunately, mm -hmm. I love doing this, but like, I think um, even if you're obsessing over it and putting so much time and effort into it, like your messaging is always going to change, like at the of same time that you're even able to update the website. So it's like you literally have this is like a constant work in progress to to stay on top of telling a great story. And the payoff of telling just a little bit of a better story on your website um, can be like you know, two to three X more pipelines from the same channels, right? Because those people yes. are on your website already. And it's just that some of them are bouncing. Well, and I think to your point, if you think of it, I think we've debunked sort of the idea that there is some linear funnel out there, but to your point that it will likely almost always end on your website regardless. And so the idea is, why would you want to scale something, right? Why would you want to build these big demand programs and spend a ton of ad dollars if you weren't sure that the mousetrap at the end of this was actually going to be effective? And it Kind of goes back to what we were saying at the top, the idea of you don't want to scale things that don't work. And so if you weren't super sure that the last place and, you know, you always start at the end and work your way backwards, um, you know, because, again, otherwise you're going to drive a ton of people there and they're all going to bounce. And so it's not really going to be beneficial for you. And so before you go out there with the budget is make sure that your house is, is in order. Right. So that when everybody comes in from wherever they're coming in that you can at least to the best of your ability, lead them through the story that they need to hear. And once you're now confident that it will convert now, that's when you can build all this stuff around it. But I think to your point, it's get the foundation in place, which is, this is what it is for you. Yep. And it doesn't have to always be like a, it actually shouldn't be a website redesign, right? Just, right. just like change the copy and image mm -hmm. on a couple of pages. Like usually that's good enough to meaningfully move your story forward. Exactly. I love that. And so what would you say, uh, what would you say the most important skill or skills that a, a marketer could possess just generally and what they would need to embody to be effective in their jobs? Yeah. So a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a general manager who mm -hmm. um, basically wanted to pick my brain on um, maybe some changes uh, to, to make to the way his company was approaching marketing. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, yes, because this person is a customer of Colab. So it was yeah. like a yeah. little slot side consulting project. Yeah. Um, and, uh, he, we, he, we were having a bit of a conversation and I asked him, would you feel confident putting your current marketing leader in front of a customer? Mm -hmm. And he was like, eh. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we both agreed that that was probably the problem. So yeah. 
Um, there's all kinds of skills that you can have, soft skills, hard skills. But to mm -hmm. me, the difference between a junior marketer and a senior marketer is like the CEO would respond to that question with enthusiastically, yes, I would put my person in charge of marketing in front of any customer. Yeah, and, and frankly, even if I just think back to my own career, when I, I think of you know, sort of the majority of the early part of my career where I was leading analytics. But the truth is, I couldn't tell you what our products actually did, what our, you know, who our customers really were. I needed to know the data and it was almost, I knew the subject matter, but I didn't know the customers. And, and so to your point, I think it was, it was really, when I think back to my own career, I think that was really the inflection point for me is when I really started to understand better the customers we were serving and what they needed and ultimately how our product helped to do that. And, and again, basically all of the connective tissue around and when you get outside of just that specialty you're working in. Totally. Um, so what resources, books, podcasts, newsletters, blogs, what's out there that you would want to recommend to our audience? Yeah, so my I think the one marketing book in recent history that I like really have implemented a bunch mm -hmm. of times is Building a Story Brand. Yep. Um, I just love like how Donald Miller scientifically breaks down storytelling. Like it really helps the concept of storytelling click yep. for me. Um, so that's a great one. I would say like curate your LinkedIn feed would be the number mm -hmm. one for me. Um, I, I curate my LinkedIn feed all the time. So I unfollow like probably 20 people a week, which is a big oh, one. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, there's a couple of people who, who just, uh, post regular insights that I've been finding really, um, useful. Chris Orlov actually is a sales, um, mm -hmm. sales, uh, commentator, I suppose. And, uh, he's been posting just like fantastic insights recently. So he's one of my favorites, favorite follows right now. Um, and then one of my favorite marketing podcasts right now is, uh, Anna Fermanov's Modern Startup Marketing. I think yep. she has great guests. I think she's super prepared and um, has some really interesting like thematic questions that she's been throwing out there and, and getting some interesting answers. That's great. And, and I, I love the the shout out for you know, somebody who's in sales, right? Because I, I think one of the other things, we've kind of talked about this in a couple of different ways is how we borrow things from other disciplines that make a ton of sense or frankly, how it connects into marketing and being able to recognize and understand a little more about the the functions that are connected to it um, you know, can really help us do our jobs better too. Totally. Yeah. Um, he, he's posted some, some stuff recently about like demos and, um, you know, how to, how to frame it when a customer asks for a demo too early. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's really interesting because like at the end of the day, the, the demo is a channel. Yeah, <laughs> and, that's right. Like it's, it's just a customized ta tailored channel. Mm -hmm. So, um, your marketing messaging like should flow right through a demo. So like if mm -hmm. you're a marketing leader and you're not thinking about how demos get delivered um, and just kind of leaving that up to sales, I think that's a, that's a miss. I love that. Um, and then finally, where can people find and connect with you on social media? Uh, I'm most active on LinkedIn. So mm -hmm. you can find me uh, MJ Smith. Uh, I'm a little bit on Twitter, uh, which are my more like casual and unfiltered takes. So if that's, <laughs> if that's what you're looking for, you can find me there too. You've been warned. <laughs> Um, well, MJ, this has been great. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time today. No worries. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed my conversation with MJ. I love her obsession with getting the messaging right and her anecdote of how she uncovered the one use case that mattered to her buyer through customer research. It illustrates how important it is to get as close to your customers as possible. If you want to learn more about the resources mentioned in this episode, you can find them in our show notes. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us for a new episode next week on Long Story Short.